Amen. Thanks, Kurt. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 18. If that's a hard copy, just flip yourself over to there. If, it's a, if you've got it on a digital copy, then tap and swipe your way. And we're just looking at four verses this morning, verses 31 to 34. While you get yourself situated, uh, I also want you to think backward. It was probably in elementary school where you started learning about the sort of general topic of opportunity cost. That like if you had $5 and you spent it on candy, then you couldn't spend the same $5 on a toy. And so when you chose to buy the candy with your $5, the opportunity cost was the toy that you couldn't get. And about the time you started to wrap your head around that, the teacher started to introduce the fact that opportunity cost can also be less tangible things. Like the fact that you chose to be here at 11.30 on a Sunday morning means that you can't be still in your bed at 11.30 on Sunday morning, but you also can't be on a beach in Fiji at 11.30 this Sunday morning. Those are opportunity costs. And everything that we do, we make a decision, we make a choice, and by choosing that one thing, we're actually saying no to an infinite number of other things. And so you start like wrapping your head around that as a child and you're like, well, why would I say yes to anything if I'm closing myself off to all of the other options? I'll just choose nothing. There's a cost associated with every single choice you make. Some of those costs are physical. They're like dollars and cents. Others are more intangible, like how warm it probably is on that Fiji beach right now. But when we're talking about following Jesus... Jesus actually tells his listeners that there's a cost, that you will be paying something in order to follow him. And we're going to talk about that this morning. The passage is short. So the way we do this this morning is going to look a little bit different, maybe than a typical Sunday morning. Uh, We're going to work our way through the passage like we always would, and we'll do some sort of theological reflecting while we do that. But what I really want to give a chunk of time to this morning is then taking a step back And I want to do some reflecting on this passage, uh, sort of like pastor to congregation, if you will. And then I'd also like to take even one step back from there. And I'd like to do a little reflecting personally uh, in a way that I think will probably resonate with all of us, given sort of where we are in the world right now. And so um, because the passage is short, if you're comfortable and able, would would you stand up while we read from God's word? Before we read, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ. God, to declare that you're worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. God, to gather together around the gospel, the thing that unites and unifies us to gather together around your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here among us. Take the truth of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us into the image of your son, transform us into people of the kingdom of God who are passionate about the gospel, passionate about the display of your glory in the world that you created, who are passionate about obedience to you, who are passionate about submission to the king. God, would you do that work in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
This is what Luke 18, starting in verse 31, says. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The heading in your Bible on this passage likely says something to the tune of the third prediction of Jesus' death. Uh, This is the third extended passage where Jesus talks about what his death will look like. It's actually more like the seventh time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has made an allusion to what will happen at the cross in Jerusalem. We've taken the previous two larger passages, they both occur in Luke chapter 9, and we've handled them in conjunction with other teaching that Jesus was doing around those statements. This is the only time we're going to deal with this one sort of as its own unit, if you will. And this is where we're headed. Jesus is a willing savior and a worthy king. As we walk our way through the passage, I just want to split that statement out into two pieces. He's a willing savior and a worthy king. Remember the big picture of Luke that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Everything that Luke is doing is in the shadow of the cross. And so the way that he sets up his gospel account is actually moving toward Jerusalem where the cross awaits Jesus. And so that moment there in Jerusalem Not just the crucifixion, but the trial, arrest, trial, sentencing, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, all of that sort of smashed together. That event looms over the whole of Jesus's life and ministry. It's the cross and all that comes with it that awaits him in Jerusalem. And yet we're told that Jesus is headed there in a determined fashion, in a dogged, devoted, willing fashion manner. Jesus is a willing savior. The gospels make that abundantly clear, all four of them. Look at the way Jesus says it in this passage. Then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and they will flog him. And after they flog him, they will kill him. Everything written through the prophets. Everything that the Old Testament said about the coming Messiah. And the Old Testament uses a lot of different language to talk about this coming Messiah. He's the son of man. He's the son of David. He's the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. All that the Old Testament has to say about that individual, the Messiah, every last bit of it is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is committed to that. He's not just committed to that in life. When we think about these words from Jesus, we think about his 33 years on earth. Even less than that, we think about three years of his ministry. And the vast majority of the gospel narratives are given really to just like the last few days of his life. But the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, The son is eternally 
committed to everything that is, has been written about him being fulfilled. We see him committing to head to Jerusalem, and it's striking because we know what awaits him there. But he committed long before this moment to putting on flesh and stepping out of the glory of heaven. He committed long before this moment in conjunction with the triune eternal God that this would be the way that the son would die. That's an eternally decreed, deep in eternity past decision. And it's because of that eternal commitment that any of the prophecies were ever written in the first place. It's not the prophecies were written, the son came, and then Jesus had to force it all to happen going forward. It's everything was decreed in the past. The prophecies were written because they were as good as done. And then the son comes and he is submissive to the will of triune eternal God. He doesn't have to force anything. He allows the sovereignty and the providence of God to do what was eternally decreed. Jesus can say with certainty that everything about, from the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished because in the eyes of the triune God of eternity, there is good as fulfilled long before any one of them was ever written down. And what is it that Jesus says will happen? Well, he will be handed over to the Gentiles. This is the first time that Gentiles are mentioned in any of the long or brief statements about the end of Jesus's life. In the others, it talks about Jewish leaders, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, that they will hand Jesus over. They'll betray him into the hands of men. Now we get a reference to the Gentiles. And so how is that all going to play out? Well, if you fast forward to Luke 23 and 24, Jesus is going to be taken before the Sanhedrin. That's the council of Jewish leaders. They're going to determine that he is guilty of blasphemy. And then they're going to send him over to Pilate, who is the Roman uh, like governing authority. Pilate is going to spend some time talking to him. And Pilate's going to say, this seems like a religious squabble. I don't know what you want me to do. And he's going to kick Jesus over to Herod. Now, Herod is a Jewish sort of proxy leader for the Roman government over the area of Israel. And Herod actually receives Jesus and is excited about it because he's heard a lot about this guy, Jesus, and now he's got a chance to have an audience with him. And so Herod is actually thrilled by the chance to have some back and forth with Jesus, asks him a few questions, gets to the end of it. And Herod's like, ah, I don't see any reason to do to this man what the Sanhedrin wants. And he sends him back over to Pilate. And that's when the Pharisees whip the crowds up into a frenzy. Pilate says, what do you want me to do with this man? They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and give us Barabbas. And Jesus is then sentenced ultimately to his death. And what you've got in that is you've got Jewish leaders and Gentile leaders who in biblical times, that's representative of all of humanity, those who are God's chosen people, those who are not, making a decision that the Son of Man would go to the cross. And when the Son of Man goes to the cross, he's going to die there for all of humanity, for a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Jesus says, they're gonna hand me over to the Gentiles. It's not just the Gentiles. It's everybody that's going to sentence him. And once that happens, Jesus says he's going to be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, he will be killed. That's what he knows awaits him. That's what he knows has awaited him since eternity past. 
He knew that that's what awaited him when he took on flesh and stepped into the world. It's not just death, but abuse and pain and anguish and degradation and humiliation. That's what's in Jerusalem. Remember where all of this started. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God. He pulls the 12 aside and he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Nothing is going to stop him. That's where he's headed. He's headed there willingly and determinedly. When I was like eight years old, uh, my family went to Disney World for the second time. And pretty much every illustration in my life trickles its way back to Disney World. So this is what you get. We had been there once. And when we were there the first time, they were working on the construction of this new ride, the Tower of Terror. It's like 150 feet tall. You ride up in an elevator and the elevator falls and you go up and down a little bit. But it wasn't done yet. And so uh, I waited like a year and I talked about riding the Tower of Terror constantly. I knew everything there was to know about it. We had seen like some commercials for it on TV. Then we go the next summer back down to Disney World. It's like a 20 hour car ride. And I talked about riding the Tower of Terror the entire time. And then we got there and we get up to like where you would get in the line and that thing is huge and it's kind of looming over everything and you can hear the people screaming inside of it and I'm standing there and all of a sudden I'm like super scared and my mom says oh no you're writing I have heard about this thing for a year for 20 hours it never stopped you and your father are both getting on that ride The roles in this don't fit perfectly, but that's what Jesus is saying. I know what waits in Jerusalem and I'm going. And I know, disciples, what you're going to do to me when we're there in Jerusalem and we're going. And nothing is going to stop me from doing that. And the question is, why? Like, why would Jesus do that? Well, because he's a willing savior. And Jesus is a willing savior because the display of God's glory is a worthy outcome. And the verbiage on that is intentional and it's important. Jesus is a willing savior because the display of God's glory is a worthy outcome. And I want to drill into that a little bit further. Specifically, at the cross, Jesus is a willing Savior because the display of God's glory in the collection of God's people is a worthy outcome. A people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And when Jesus goes to the cross and dies for humanity's sin, that God might, by his grace, collect his people through faith in Jesus Christ, that's a worthy cause that the display of God's glory would be shouted into the universe that God created in the death of the Son. For Jesus, that's a worthy outcome. Now hear this clearly. Jesus really, truly, immeasurably, completely, perfectly, unendingly, graciously, mercifully, unthinkably, incomprehensibly, 
undeservingly loves you. Like that is who the Savior is. I'll say it again. Jesus really, truly, immeasurably, completely, perfectly, unendingly, graciously, mercifully, incomprehensibly, unthinkably, undeservingly loves you. But the statement on the screen is intentional. You see, Jesus is a willing savior because the display of God's glory in the collection of his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue is a worthy outcome. And we can be very general about that, and we should be because it's true, but we've got to hold in tension the specificity of it. Because Jesus is a willing savior because the display of God's glory in the collection of individuals is a worthy outcome. And so Jesus dies on the cross and shouts the glory of God out into the universe for the collection of God's people, but also for the salvation of individuals individually. I mean, he really loves you. He's a willing savior. Like Jesus goes to the cross because Austin Lear, like he really does love you. He really does. Molly Stansberry, like he really loves you. I don't know what you may be, like what shame or grief you drug in here this morning. I don't know the weight of that that you carried, but brother and sister in Christ, like the Savior willingly died because he truly loves you. And going to the cross and displaying the glory of God and the collection of God's people and the salvation of individuals, it was a worthy outcome for him. And so Jesus says, I know everything that awaits me in Jerusalem. We're going there. Because the display of God's glory and the crucifixion of the Son is a worthy outcome. Why hammer away at that? Like, why make such a big deal out of that? We'll go back to our passage. Jesus gathers the 12 together and he looks them in the eye. 12 individuals who are going to scatter in fear at his death. And he says, look, we're going because you're worth it. Like, I know what waits there. I'm gonna be insulted and spit on and mocked and tried and accused for something that I didn't do. I'm gonna die an excruciatingly painful death. I'm gonna be buried. You're gonna abandon me. And it's worth it. For the display of the glory of God and the giving of the son for the collection of God's people. He really does love his people. He really does love you. And he is a willing Savior. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The dominant note left ringing in our ears after, the gospel, after reading the Gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it and yet truly desire it. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. 
It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed. He's a willing savior because he really does love his people. He's also a worthy king. That's the very last little phrase there in verse 33. Handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spit on. After they flog him, they will kill him and he will rise on the third day. Jesus, the king, is going to defeat Satan by dismantling his most potent weapon. And that weapon is death. And the resurrection is as certain as the crucifixion. And it has been for all of eternity. Not just since the fall in Genesis 3, not just since the Exodus, not just since God called his people and carried them through the Old Testament, not just since the birth of Jesus, not just since Luke 18. It's not something that comes about after the crucifixion of Jesus. Like that resurrection has been rock solid certainty for all of eternity. And how is it that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent? Well, he's going to do so by stomping on the serpent's head on his way out of the tomb. Like that's how it happens. How is it that the king of kings and lord of lords is going to display the superiority of his rule and his reign? By resurrecting from the grave. Death could not hold him. Way before Babe Ruth stepped up to home plate and called his shot to left field, Jesus, multiple times, called all of his shots. Why? Because he's the triune God of eternity and he knows every single one of them. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're gonna hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be insulted and spit upon. They're going to flog me. I'm going to die, but write it in cement. I will rise on the third day. The king on his throne is a resurrected king. And so we sing, is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? He is. He is. He is worthy. And then in verse 34, Luke really just does the disciples dirty. Three times in two sentences, they understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. At some point, the disciples got their hand, hands on Luke's gospel and said, hey man, could you have taken it a little bit easier on us? This was a guy we gave our lives to following and he was saying he was gonna die and that was hard enough to understand, but then he was also saying he was gonna rise from the dead and let's be honest, never seen that happen before. So why you gotta be so brutal about that? That's the passage. Let me take a step back. Pastor to congregation. All of Jesus' life is in the shadow of what awaits him at the cross in Jerusalem. Jesus knows it. He's known it from all of eternity. He's known it the entirety of his life. Luke lays out his gospel to help us understand it. The other side of that coin is that as followers of Jesus, as the king's people, our lives are lived in the shadow of the cross. 
It isn't just that we come to the cross and we receive God's grace for our salvation. And then the cross from Calvary casts this long shadow forward that is big enough to encompass all of our lives. That's true. In fact, Jesus says throughout his ministry that that shadow is large enough to encompass all of our past sins, all of our future wanderings, all of our current struggles. It's big enough to encompass and give mercy to even like our older brother, pharisaical hearts. Like Jesus's ministry is making all of that clear. All of that is true. But the picture that Jesus actually paints for his disciples about what it means to follow him positions the cross much more closely and much more intimate than standing off in the distance somewhere back at Calvary. Because Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, if you want to come after me, where's the cross? You're gonna pick it up and you're gonna carry it. Like the cross is going to cast its shadow, not just from Calvary where the Savior died, it's gonna cast its shadow from your back. And you're going to live in the shadow of that. Because that's what it is to be my disciple. And you need to count the cost. The shadow of the cross is one that's being cast from right on top of us, brothers and sisters. Our life is in the shadow of the cross in the sense that that is where we received mercy and grace and new life and eternal life and all the gifts of salvation but our lives are lived in the shadow of the cross because as followers of Jesus, we've taken up our cross. We are carrying our cross and its shadow is cast from the nearness of our backs. That's what it is to follow Jesus. We are to live lives that follow the pattern of our willing and worthy savior. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, we are going up to Jerusalem because the display of God's glory is worth the cross that awaits me. And as followers of his, as the king's people, we would say, whatever the circumstance is, the display of God's glory is worth the cross that we bear. That's what it is to be his people. Why does Jesus go to the cross? He goes to the cross in fulfillment of the scriptures and in fulfillment of the eternal will of God because the display of God's glory is a worthy outcome. The collection of God's global people and the salvation of individuals individually, the screaming of God's glory into his universe, that is a worthy outcome. And that's not our role. We are not the savior. We are servants, disciples. We don't carry our cross as a means by which we merit what Jesus did for us at Calvary, we carry our cross because he already did the work on our behalf. We are to live lives in the shadow of the cross, the cross that we've taken up and are carrying as we follow him. And so the work of a willing and a worthy savior makes followers of Jesus willing servants of a worthy king. That's who we are. If you've been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then as followers of Jesus, we are willing servants of a worthy king. That's how the gospel rearranges the life of a follower of Jesus. That's how the good rule and reign of the king reorients the king's people. 
It's how the Holy Spirit takes the work of Jesus in breaking the power of sin and then applies it in the life of a saved sinner. Go back to where we started this morning, opportunity cost. This is why Jesus told his disciples, he tells his people that if they're going to follow him, they need to count the cost. I don't want to bog this down in a theological debate about Calvinism and Arminian theology, but no one forced you to follow Jesus. God drew you to himself. He opened the eyes of your heart and your mind to the grace of Jesus and the brother or sister in Christ. You ran to the cross for mercy. And Jesus says, count the cost of that because your life is no longer yours. It's the king's. You're taking up your cross. You're taking up your cross because the display of the glory of God in all of your circumstances is a worthy outcome. And so the question for followers of of Jesus today, 2,000 years later, is are we willing servants of a worthy king or are we just kind of ambivalent admirers of a crucified religious man? I'm not sure there's a more important question in front of the American church today. Like, are we willing servants of a worthy king who willingly and joyfully pick up their cross and follow him? Or are we 2,000 years distant, people who just kind of admire a man on a cross and say, he seems like a good guy? The difference between those two things is the cross. Not just the cross for our salvation, the difference is where that cross now casts its shadow from. Yes, the cross casts a long shadow from Calvary over all of human history, and it's literally the hinge point upon which all of human history turns. But for the follower of Jesus, it is more than that. For the follower of Jesus, who's a willing servant of the worthy king, that cross casts its shadow from your back because you picked it up and now you're carrying it. Glenn Packiam, he's a pastor and an author. He says it this way. This is lengthy, but I think it's all worth it. A disciple is one who actually carries their cross. Not one who simply believes in the cross or is grateful for Jesus's cross. A disciple is one who follows Jesus so closely that they take up their cross. Their life has taken on the same shape as Jesus. The cross is the difference between keeping a vague notion of the Christian life and actually becoming like Jesus. The central act of Christ is the bearing of the cross. He is known in heaven as the lamb who was slain. And the imitation of Christ is nothing if it is not the tracing of our lives around the contours of the cross. When we talk about building devoted followers of Jesus Christ, when we say that here at LCF, we want to be a church who exists for the sake of making disciples, We're talking about being a church who lives and breathes for the sole purpose of the display of God's glory in the collection of his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, from every subdivision and cul-de-sac, from every suburb and state. When we talk about being a church who exists to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, then it is our passion and our heartbeat 
to see God's people collected from every corner of the earth so that they might come to the cross, fall down at the cross, be saved at the cross, and then take up their cross. And if we're going to be people that God uses to do that work in this world, then it's going to start because we are those kinds of people in this world. If we're going to be people used by God who build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, it will be because the Holy Spirit molds us into willing servants of a worthy king. It will be because we are people who in every circumstance and situation have a Holy Spirit built reflex that says, give me the cross. I will bear it. It will be because we are a people who are increasingly being molded, not into American notions of what it is to be, quote, Christian, but into the timeless and eternal image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It will be because we are people who at our very core truly delight, like Jesus, in being able to say that the display of God's glory in all of our situations is a worthy outcome. And that display starts and ends with taking up the cross. A really quick note here. The display of God's glory is the only motivator truly strong enough to joyfully sustain this kind of life. Just say, well, my kids are worth it. So I'll live a life that looks like Jesus. It won't be enough. You'll, You'll end up crushing your children. If you're married and you say, well, my spouse is worth it. And because my spouse is worth it, I'll live a life that looks like Jesus. It won't be enough. You'll crush your spouse. Or if you say, well, Jesus says to love my neighbor as myself, so my neighbor's worth it. Your neighbor won't be worth it. You'll crush your neighbor. Excellence at my job a good reputation, comfort and security, those are worth it. And so for that reason, I'll follow God. None of those will be worth it. None of those can bear the weight of what it is to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Jesus is a willing savior and a worthy king. He is the only one who is ultimately worthy. His work on the cross proves that. He is the only one who can ultimately bear the weight of your entire heart and your entire soul. And his work on the cross, the declaration of God's glory, that's the only thing strong enough to motivate this kind of life. No lesser created thing, no matter how good it is, was ever intended to do so. I'm gonna take one more step backward and just reflect a little bit personally. It was two years ago this weekend, March 15th, 2020, that we navigated the first Sunday that was impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. It looked like this. I sat up here. There were like three people in the room. At that time, we had no, like we knew so little about COVID-19 that it was like, how many, how many people can even be there? Like, what are we supposed to do? So I sat here on a stool with a camera there right in my face. And in order to get the angles right, we had to prop the stool up on like four Bibles uh, just to get it like a little bit higher. And we started trying to feel our way through what it was going to look like to do church 
given the situation. It feels like two decades worth of stuff has happened. I'm smiling in that picture. I haven't smiled in two years. I'm kidding. (laughs) It feels like years and years worth of time has passed since that picture. And it's been hard and draining for everyone, for business leaders, healthcare workers, parents and educators and students. It's been hard on law enforcement. It's been hard on government officials and pastors. It's been hard on school boards and election officials and media members, you name it. No one has come through all of the turmoil of the last two years unscathed, unharmed, or unimpacted. In fact, my guess is that you walked in here this morning with just this general sense of fatigue that you can't exactly pin down where it came from. And it's not just because you lost an hour of sleep last night. It's because the condition of the last couple of years has been so weighty on all of our souls that it just has us exhausted. Often, particularly in the last six months or so, someone will ask me in a totally well-meaning sort of way, well, what's been the hardest part leading a church through all of this? And my mind will start to churn like a million miles per hour, just kind of rehashing all of the various iterations of things over the last two years. The shutdown was hard. Preaching to a camera was hard all the decisions surrounding reopening, that was hard. A lack of connection with people in our congregation, especially in those first like six, nine, 12 months was really hard, but it's, it's continued to be hard in the second year of things. COVID funerals have been hard. Every single mask decision was hard. Navigating the election was hard. Social media has been hard, just like normal news media has been hard. Friendships have been hard. Marriage has been hard. I mean, for some, there was like 40-some days where we were told to just stay in your house and don't leave, and it was you and your spouse after about six days looking at each other like, how are we going to navigate this? As a side note, I can't imagine how hard singleness has been. If you're married, think back to when you were dating, then put a mask on it. Having people leave LCF for any number of reasons, that's been hard. People that we love. Trusting God to preserve this congregation amid a million different opportunities for varied opinions and disunity, that's been hard. Knowing what my role is as pastor in the middle of that in terms of trying to like hold this thing together while trusting God that ultimately he's gonna build his church and that doesn't rest on me, but it feels like it does. That's been hard. That's been hard for our whole staff, for our leadership team. Carefully choosing my words in every sermon or every email, that's been hard. Just kind of existing in an atmosphere of frustration and general discontent. It's been hard. But none of that is actually unique to being a pastor. What's been hardest is something much larger than all of that. And I think it's not all that different for me as a pastor than for you as a congregant or for you in any other avenue of your life. Because the hardest part of this whole deal for the last two years has been figuring out how to follow Jesus. 
That's been the hardest part. And there's a uniqueness to that for me because I lead this church. And so my view of scripture and what it looks like to take up the cross and follow Jesus has had impacts on everyone in this congregation in ways that maybe you would have wished those impacts were different. Or if you had been in this position, you would have done something different. But my following Jesus has had the microscope of this community of followers of Christ And my decisions in that regard has impacted people. And that's been heavy and that's been weighty. But the decisions haven't been that different. This is what my flesh wants. This is what I think it looks like to take up my cross and follow Jesus. And all of us have been trying to figure that out. And here's been the real challenge. There's been no clean model for exactly what that should look like in any one situation. And you throw about a thousand situations out there and all of us are looking around saying, well, I'm following Jesus and it looks like this, but you say you're following Jesus and it looks way over here. What are we supposed to do with that? And it's been hard. It's been weighty for all of us. But the bottom line is this, that Jesus is a willing savior and a worthy king. And I don't wanna sound trite here. I'm not trying to be like dismissive of anything, but the hardest part of the last two years has been figuring out what in the world it ought to look like to be a follower of Jesus who sees that savior and that king and says, you know what? I'm a willing servant. Like I'll just, I'll take up the cross. And doing that, in every circumstance and in every situation that a brutally difficult season of life has presented to us. What's the opportunity cost as a follower of Jesus here? What does it look like to bear the cross? But figuring out what life in the shadow of the cross looks like, brothers and sisters, is always worth it. Being committed to the display of God's glory in every situation of our lives, that is always worth it. Partnership with God's mission to draw to himself, his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every corner of the earth, it demands that we be serious about looking honestly at taking up our cross and following Jesus. Obedience to God's word demands that we take seriously what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Honest and genuine discipleship demands that we take seriously looking at life around us and saying, what does it look like to take up my cross and follow Jesus? And here's the thing, when we get to the other side of this whole deal and we actually see the king in all of his glory and in all of his splendor, resurrected and seated on his throne, I don't think there's going to be one second whereby you and I think to ourselves, ah, I over-sacrificed. I really wish I hadn't taken up my cross in that situation. I don't think it was worth it in the end. We're gonna see the king in all of his glory and in all of his splendor and we're going to see with unveiled faces for the very first time just how much he loves us, just how willing he was, just how worthy he is. And I think we're gonna think back and say, I don't know that I took it seriously enough. That by taking up my cross in this life, I could be part of the proclamation of God's glory in his world to the ends of the earth. 
the most serious question facing the American church while we fight with one another, another over a thousand different issues is, are we willing like Jesus to say, I'm going to the cross and I will pick it up and follow him. And I understand the scorn that might come with that. I understand the degradation that might come with that. I understand the fact that the world will look at me and think that I'm crazy, but I am going to the cross because the display of God's glory is worth it. Oh, that we would be people who not just begrudgingly say that because we think we have to, but who burn with a passion inside of our hearts that says, I will joyfully and willingly take up my cross to serve a worthy king. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. Let's...